MSW Media. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Tuesday, November 9th, 2021. Today, the January 6th committee subpoenas Mike Flynn and others tied to the Willard War Room. Ted Cruz lashes out at Big Bird. The Fifth Circuit Court of Ass Hattery has stayed Biden's vaccine mandate. Aaron Rodgers lied about his vaccine status, putting teammates at risk and is now facing backlash. The Department of Justice sees $6 million in ransomware payments and charged a Ukrainian in a major cyber attack. And a Pennsylvania election official is suing Trump and his surrogates. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hello. Happy Tuesday, everyone. Dana is out, but I will be joined for the good news by Amy Carrero, super movie star extraordinaire. And we are going to be going over your submissions. If you have any good news you want to submit, or please, I'm still taking all photos of Halloween costumes, whether it be pod pets in Halloween costumes or your kids or your grandkids or you or your parents, please send them in and anything else you want to send us. Good news stories, corrections, confessions, whatever you want. You can do that by going to dailybeanspod.com and clicking on contact. I have a big surprise. We're going to be talking, well, I'm going to be talking with Peter Strzok later in the episode. He's the author of the book Compromised, uh, worked on the Mueller investigation, FBI, you know him, you know Pete Strzok. And he will be here to talk about the latest Durham indictment, what's going on with the oranges. And interestingly, Pete Strzok says that there is materiality in, in the lie from Denchenko in the latest Durham indictment. But there is still, it is, that lie is kind of, or those two lies, I should say, are surrounded by 30 some odd pages of spin. But he and I are going to talk about that later in the show. You don't want to miss it. We do have a lot of news to get to today. I am waiting patiently, like refreshing my pacer, looking for any new story about the Chutkin ruling. Judge Chutkin in the D.C. District Court should be ruling any minute now. It has to be before Friday because that's when the National Archives would have to start handing over documents unless she, you know, says okay to a a preliminary injunction. We're waiting for that ruling. That ruling, I think personally, I haven't heard this anywhere. I'm the only one talking about it. I think that ruling will clear the way for the Department of Justice to indict Bannon. It sort of gives a legislative purpose to everything that the committee is doing. Not that they need one, but if I could possibly explain Like if we just indicted Bannon and then we go to court, Bannon's lawyers would file a motion to dismiss saying, hey, this committee doesn't have a legislative purpose. And then they would have to go through the courts to determine, yes, on the merits, we do have a legislative purpose. We can't dismiss, you know, dismissal. They like the probably the court would be like denied and then he would appeal and then the appeals court would go denied and then the Supreme Court, they would go denied. They would determine that the court has a legislative purpose. And that would take a while. That would take a minute. Not the court, excuse me. The committee has a legislative purpose. Now, we can do it that way, or we could do the waiting up front before the indictment, which I think is what they're doing. I think they're waiting for that up front. I don't know. They might not be waiting for that at all. As Barb McQuaid said today, I'll get into it a little bit later. There's other stuff they might have to go through, like getting the due process and going through discovery and getting all the documents. And I mean, there's other shit that has to go on before you indict somebody. We only have one other case of this happening in the last 50 years. That was in 1983. And uh, with the government lost, 
They indicted in nine days and the government lost that case. So we don't want to lose this one. But we don't have a pattern of how long this normally takes. But time is of the essence. I'm not saying it isn't. I wish this could go faster. I do. Believe me. So anyway, we're going to talk to Peter Strzok about Durham. But let's get to the news. We have a lot of it. So let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. Lead story today. The January 6th committee's announcement of a new round of subpoenas. And yes, I know you might ask, what's the use if Garland doesn't indict Bannon and enforce the subpoenas? But during a press conference today about a cybersecurity arrest that I'll cover in a little bit, Garland confirmed he has not ruled out indicting Bannon. That's big news because there's two ways this could go, right? He's either decided, well, three, he's either decided to do it and he does it, or he's still considering it, or he's decided not to do it. And we learned today that he hasn't decided not to do it. I know it's a double negative, but it's an important double negative. (laughs) It's proof positive, as, as we would remember from Clue. Anyway, that means he's still working on it. He hasn't decided not to. Barb McQuaid, as I said, says the longer the Department of Justice spends reviewing Bannon's subpoena matter, the more likely it is they will charge him. She says, as Joyce Vance points out, it takes time to get your ducks in a row to file an indictment, which means producing discovery anticipating motions and preparing for a speedy trial, which he has a right to. But anyhow, back to these subpoenas. They announced Monday they're issuing six additional subpoenas to top Trump campaign associates as they continue to seek testimony and documents from key witnesses in the probe. With this round of subpoenas, the committee is targeting top individuals from former Trump's reelection campaign who the panel says were involved in promoting the big lie that the presidential election was stolen. These six subpoenas are going to Trump 2020 campaign manager William Stepien, former senior advisor to the campaign Jason Miller, John Eastman, who's the attorney who did the coup for dummies, that 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 memo and helped craft Trump's argument that the election was stolen. Mike Flynn, who was involved in the meeting about how the Trump campaign wanted to promote the lie that the election was stolen. Angela McCallum, she's national executive assistant to former President Trump's 2020 reelection campaign. Executive assistant. That's like the Hope Hicks of the campaign. And Bernard Carrick, who participated in a meeting at the Willard Hotel centered around overturning the election results. All six individuals are being asked to supply the committee with documents on November 23rd, with depositions scheduled spanning the last week of November into mid-December. And just like with the Bannon thing, look for if they're going to file criminal contempt, look for the committee to wait until they don't show up for their deposition. They waited until all parts of the subpoena were violated, not just one part of the subpoena the last time with Bannon. So look for that pattern to continue unless they've changed their mind on how to do this. But without knowing the outcome of the Bannon subpoena issue, I I imagine they'll follow the same procedures. Quote, in the days before the January 6th attack, the former president's closest allies and advisors drove a campaign of misinformation about the election and planned ways to stop the count of the Electoral College votes. That's Select Committee, Benny Thompson, chair, the chair of the committee, in his statement. He he went on to say the Select Committee needs to know every detail about their efforts to overturn the election, including who they were talking to in the White House and in Congress, what connections they had with rallies that escalated into a riot, and who paid for it all. There's a first round of subpoenas issued by the committee since the House asked the Department of Justice to pursue criminal contempt charges against Bannon for defying his order to appear. The committee writes in their subpoena letter to Stepien 
that his role as Trump's former campaign manager makes him a key player to understand Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election and to promote the stop the steal narrative that rioters who stormed the U.S. Capitol on January 6th echoed. The committee cites an anonymous interview of a witness with personal knowledge to help back up its claim that Stepien was deeply involved in the messaging behind Stop the Steal. The committee, in its subpoena letter to him, also cites an internal campaign memo from shortly after the election that demonstrated the Trump campaign knew that the claims about voting machines made by Dominion were baseless. Now, Carrick, previously confirmed to CNN, he paid for rooms and suites at Washington, D.C. hotels that served as election-related command centers. He also worked with Trump's former attorney, Rudy, to, quote, investigate allegations of voter fraud and promote baseless litigation and stop the steal efforts. That's also from the committee. In February, Make America Great Again PAC, the successor organization to the Trump presidential campaign, made two large disbursements for, quote, recount travel expenses, according to a filing to the Federal Election Commission. The PAC paid Carrick's company and Giuliani's company $66,251.54 and $76,566.95, respectively. CNN previously reported that Eastman wrote an email that blamed Pence for causing the violence at the Capitol on January 6th with his refusal to block Congress's certification of the election results. That's as the riot was occurring and the then vice president hid from the mob who had breached the building. Jamie Raskin, a Democrat from Maryland, member of the committee, we know him well, previously told CNN the panel is interested in learning more about Eastman's role in attempting to overturn the election results. Quote, we need to determine to what extent there was an organized effort against the vice president. And we believe that, you know, some of the actors names have been known, including John Eastman, who laid it out in a memo. Now, to McCollum, the committee writes, this is the executive assistant of the Trump campaign, They write that its investigation and public accounts have led the panel to believe that her role as national executive assistant to Trump's reelection campaign made her aware of and involved in the campaign's efforts to spread false information about voter fraud. The committee cites a publicly available voicemail recording in its possession that McCollum left for an unknown Michigan state representative asking whether the Trump campaign could count on that representative while also telling the legislator that they had the ability to appoint an alternate slate of electors, even though the Michigan state legislature never took action. So here is another person calling for alternate slates of electors. We know that was in the Eastman memo as part of the six parts. We know they pushed Pence to throw out the slates from seven states. We know that Jeffrey Clark wrote letters to those seven states telling them to get an alternate slate of electors ready. We know Bannon was involved in this. I mean, it's all connected and they had to have talked about it. So these would be the people who would know whether Trump knew, right? The committee is also interested in Mike Flynn, who served as Trump's first national security advisor and has remained a staunch ally of of him since being fired in 2017 because he reportedly attended a December 2020 Oval Office meeting during which participants discussed seizing voting machines, declaring a national emergency invoking certain national security emergency powers and continuing to spread the false message that November 2020 had been tainted by widespread fraud. Remember, we were going to do martial law, but Millie was like, fuck you. Quote, the day before, Flynn gave an interview on Newsmax, during which he talked about seizing voting machines, foreign influence in the election, and the purported precedent for deploying military troops and declaring martial law to rerun the election. In their subpoena letter to Miller, Jason Miller, 
The committee claims that the former senior advisor used his position of power and prominence within the Trump campaign orbit to peddle lies about election fraud. The committee cites Miller's role in coordinating news conferences with Trump and Giuliani to claim that the election was rigged as one of the reasons why he is of interest to their investigation. They also point to Miller's presence at a meeting on January 5th at the Willard Hotel, which became known as the command center for Trump allies, specifically focused on how to overturn the results and pressure Pence to not certify the Electoral College. As we know, the 1-6 committee is looking to shore up the Electoral Count Act to clarify the vice president's role in certifying the results which gives them a clear legislative purpose, just waiting for a court ruling on it. And also from the Department of Justice today, law enforcement officials seized an estimated $6 million in ransom payments and federal prosecutors charged a suspect from Ukraine over a damaging July ransomware attack on an American company and a breakthrough for the Biden administration's pursuit of cyber criminals. And that's according to the Justice Department announcement on Monday. They had a press conference today. Yaroslav Vazaniski, a Ukrainian national who was arrested in Poland last month, is accused of deploying ransomware known as Revil, R-E-V-I-L, which has been used in hacks that have cost U.S. firms millions of dollars. Vazaniski introduced and conducted a ransomware attack over the 4th of July weekend, remember, on a Florida-based software firm, Kaseya, that infected up to like 1,500 businesses around the world. Vasiniski also, along with another alleged rival operative, Russian national Yevgeny Polyanin, they're both charged with conspiracy to commit fraud and conspiracy to commit money laundering. As part of the investigation, authorities seized at least $6 million in funds allegedly linked to ransom payments received by Yevgeny Polyanin. And that's according to U.S. officials. The law enforcement bust is one of the most impactful actions yet in the Biden administration's multi-pronged fight against ransomware, which accelerated after a series of hacks hampered U.S. critical infrastructure firms this year. So Attorney General Merrick Garland said at a press conference that the U.S. and its allies would do everything in our power to track down ransomware operatives and claw back the money they have stolen from the American people. Vazniewski, who's 22, is being held in Poland pending U.S. extradition proceedings, Mm -hmm. while Polyanin, who's 28, remains at large. CyberScoop first reported that Vazniewski has been arrested. The Treasury Department on Monday also imposed sanctions on Vasniewski and Polyanin, as well as cryptocurrency exchanges they were allegedly using to move money for ransomware operatives. State Department, meanwhile, announced rewards of up to $10 million for information leading to the identification or location of the leadership of the Revil ransomware gang. The department is also offering up to $5 million for information leading to an arrest or conviction of anyone conspiring or attempting to participate in Revil ransomware attacks. And in other news, a Pennsylvania election worker who was falsely accused of rigging the election for Joe Biden is suing Donald and some of his top surrogates, charging that their lies about him led to numerous death threats and two heart attacks. In papers filed in Philadelphia Court of Common Pleas, Delaware County Voting Machine Warehouse Supervisor James Savage says his character has been assassinated on a national level thanks to the false claims made by Trump, Rudy and Jenna Ellis and others that he had uploaded 50,000 votes for Biden. The plaintiff did nothing of the sort, the suit says. Despite knowing the impossibility of such claims or insinuations, Trump and his surrogates and followers spread, reposted, and disseminated these outrageously defamatory claims and insinuations against Mr. Savage, subjecting him to threats of physical violence and causing the plaintiff to suffer two heart attacks. Plaintiff rightfully feared and continues to fear for the safety of himself and his family, which seeks damages in excess of $50,000 for defamation and severe emotional, physical, and or psychological harm. And now over to the judiciary. A federal appeals court suspended the Biden administration's new vaccine requirement for private companies 
This delivers a blow for one of the White House's signature attempts to increase the number of vaccinations to corral the pandemic. The decision was issued by a panel of three judges appointed by Republican presidents and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Mm, Good old Fifth Circuit. The judges wrote there was cause to believe there are grave statutory unconstitutional issues with the mandate, even though there's a millions gazillion precedent cases from the Supreme Court, but whatever. So they're staying the order while the court assesses it in more depth. The ruling came in response to a lawsuit filed Friday by a group of plaintiffs, including Louisiana Attorney General Jeff Landry, part of a wave of lawsuits against the order from mostly Republican-aligned groups and politicians. The unsigned four-paragraph order from the court, from the panel, temporarily stops Biden's mandate, but it's not a ruling on the merits of the policy. The court gave the Justice Department until 5 p.m. Monday to respond to the challenger's request for a more permanent halt to the mandate. The Department of Labor instituted the ruling through the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA. And they said, quote, the U.S. Department of Labor is confident in its legal authority to issue the emergency temporary standard on vaccination and testing. The Occupational Safety and Health Act explicitly gives OSHA the authority to act quickly in an emergency where the agency finds that workers are subjected to grave danger and a new standard is necessary to protect them. That's Seema Nanda, Solicitor of Labor. And uh, Ted Cruz hates Big Bird. Big Bird ruffled some conservative feathers this weekend by announcing he had been vaccinated against COVID-19. The beloved Muppet tweeted on Saturday he'd gotten the shot, which is now available for Americans between the ages of 5 and 11. And as you know, Big Bird is six years old. Quote, my wing is feeling a little sore, but it'll give my body an extra protective boost that keeps me and others healthy. That was his tweet. Twitter users sounded off in the comments with many thanking the character for doing his part to keep Sesame Street safe and set a positive example for kids. Biden and the CDC, Rochelle Walensky, she's the director, were among those who offered their thanks and praise on Twitter. Others were not as appreciative. Ted Cruz described Big Bird's tweet as government propaganda. Ted. Oh, Ted Cruz. And then finally over here to Fox and their NFL pregame show, the people on it laid into Aaron Rodgers on Sunday before football. The reigning NFL MVP, Aaron Rodgers, was sidelined for Sunday's Packers-Chiefs game after he contracted COVID and when it was revealed that he wasn't vaccinated. His status contradicted his preseason proclamation of, yeah, I've been immunized. Directly, he was asked if he'd been vaccinated. His lack of vaccination ensured that he couldn't play on Sunday. That's per protocols by the NFL. That he misled fans. Okay, let's just say lied. That he lied to fans and media about his status made him a target of pointed criticism from Sunday's network talking heads. Terry Bradshaw, who won four Super Bowls as the quarterback of Pittsburgh Steelers, had previously placed Rodgers in his crosshairs. He did not hold back during the broadcast from the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. He said, I'd give Aaron Rodgers some advice. It would have been nice if he'd just come to the Naval Academy and learned how to be honest, learned not to lie, because that's what you did, Aaron. You lied to everyone. While Bradshaw's criticism may have been the most pointed on Sunday, he certainly wasn't alone. Bradshaw's studio mates, Jimmy Johnson and Howie Long, also criticized the Packers quarterback. Michael Strahan, meanwhile, took issue with Rodgers invoking and misquoting Martin Luther King Jr. this week when attempting to defend himself, saying he was talking to the Pat McAfee show. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but that's how I'm going to pronounce it. Uh, I don't listen to it, but it's the Pat McAfee show. And he said, the great MLK said you have a moral obligation to object to unjust rules and rules that make no sense. Strahan says there's times to quote MLK. This is not one of them. All right. We'll be right back with Pete Strzok, author of Compromised. We're going to talk about Durham and his oranges. You don't want to miss it. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. 
Hey everybody, it's AG with The Beans. Did you know that women are at higher risk of poor sleep quality and sleep deprivation due to hormonal changes that disrupt the circadian rhythm? I did. (laughs) This can negatively impact your overall health, which is not a laughing matter, and this can lead to hot flashes and night sweats in up to 85% of women, making sleep seem impossible. And uh, even if you put the cell phone down and turn the lights off, your body still needs one final trigger to let it know we can sleep now. This trigger is a decrease in body temperature, which hacks your primal response and convinces your body it's time to go to bed. This is where Chili Sleep comes to the rescue. Their team helps people from all walks of life achieve better sleep, whether you're a new mom or you know a mom or you just hate tossing and turning in sweaty sheets. Chili Sleep makes the Uller and Cube sleep systems customizable, hydro-powered, temperature-controlled mattress toppers that fit over your existing awesome mattress to provide your ideal sleep temperature. These luxury mattress pads keep your bed at the perfect temperature for deep sleep, whether you sleep hot or cold. As part of the overall scientific study conducted by Wake Forest researchers, Chili Sleep's cooling bed, the products, were shown to significantly reduce the frequency of night sweats by 86% and the frequency of hot flashes by 64%. You know, I've had trouble falling and staying asleep for years, but recently I've been sleeping so much better since I started using Chili Sleep to regulate my body temperature. So head over to chilisleep.com beans to learn more and check out a special offer available exclusively for Daily Beans listeners. And for a limited time, that's chili, C-H-I-L-I, sleep.com slash beans to take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up refreshed every day. Today's show is also brought to you by Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes a comprehensive daily nutrition thing. It's just so simple and convenient. Uh, You know, we deal with so much stress, poor sleep, exercise, uh, a hectic schedule. All of that makes it very difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits. I'm I'm an intermittent faster, so I have huge gaps in my diet for nutrition. But that's where Athletic Greens comes into play. It's called AG1. It's the category-leading superfood product, bringing comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition to everyone. Just one tasty scoop of AG1 has 75 vitamins and minerals and whole food-sourced ingredients, including multivitamins, a multimineral, a probiotic, a green superfood blend, and more in one convenient daily serving. It's all in one place. Their special blend of high-quality bioavailable ingredients includes a, included in a scoop of AG1. They all work together to fill those nutritional gaps, and they support energy and focus and aid with gut health and digestion, and they support a healthy immune system, effectively replacing multiple products or pills with one healthy, delicious drink. It's lifestyle-friendly, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, it's all there, and it contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals, no artificial anything. And it all it tastes great. My favorite thing about it is the research changes. And, and that means AG1 changes too. While most nutritional products come to the market never evolve, Athletic Greens continues to obsessively improve AG1 based on the latest research. Well, how about that? They've had 53 improvements over the last decade and counting. So I recommend you give it a try. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune-supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans today. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans to take control of your health and give AG1 a try. Everybody, welcome back. I'm happy to be joined today by the author of the book, Compromised. Please welcome Pete Strzok. Pete, how are you? Hey, I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Lots of news happening today. It was, it was kind of a slow day, and I think it's starting to pick up a little bit here in the afternoon. And I wanted to bring you on today, though, to talk about something that went down last week, and that was the indictment of uh, somebody who gave information to Christopher Steele to put together his dossier. A man named Denchenko was indicted by Durham in his investigation into the oranges, which is what we call it here on the show. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about 
this indictment because, you know, you and I talked, we went in depth on the on the Sussman indictment. And it seems like the same sort of thing is going on here. It's a 39 page thing. It seems like it's full of a lot of trying to push conspiracy theories is what it seems like. But what, what are your thoughts? So I'm, I'm mixed on this because on the one hand, I, I do support as alleged, prosecuting Danchenko based on the behavior that is uh, set forth in part of these uh, 39 pages. I think, you know, we spent a tremendous amount of effort at the Bureau trying to track down the material from Steele, uh, where it came from, whether or not it was accurate. And so to the extent our trying to get to the bottom of that to figure out who the subsources were, to get to them and ask them for follow-up information or more specific information, in my mind, these alleged misstatements or, or uh, false statements by Danchenko were, in my mind, very relevant to the work that we were doing. And I can make an argument for materiality much, much more strongly than I can with Sussman's indictment. And I have you know, a, a, several issues with Sussman, but I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Or with his indictment, I should say, not with him. But with Danchenko, it's pretty clear in my mind, I think there's a strong case for materiality that is laid out in the indictment. I think unlike Sussman's indictment, where it was based on, you know, a five-year-old recollection where nothing was written down at the time of the interview, some third-hand notes are there where these, you know, in many of the cases, Danchenko's interviews were recorded. So you have specific word for word what the alleged false statements were. So in my mind, I think the charges are very defensible and legitimate. Um, you know, I'm biased as a former FBI agent that it's bad to lie to the FBI. You know, tell the truth. If you sit down, you should be doing that. And if you don't, that that is breaking the law. Now, having said that, I think the five counts that are charged really surround two events. One is a false statement that he allegedly made with regard to talking to a what's a person named as PR Executive One, which he's been very identified on the internet. The indictment doesn't identify him, so I'm not going to. And then counts two through five are essentially a continuation of a single false statement that he makes in the context of uh, speaking or not speaking to somebody who I think is referred to Russian Chamber of Commerce Official One or something like that. Again, person's been correctly identified uh, online, but I'm not going to name him. But those counts two, three, four, and five are, in, in my mind, strike me a little bit as, you know, he made a false statement and then he continued to double down on it as he was asked about it or as it came up again in conversation. So again, whether you break that out into two counts versus five counts, you know, there's some prosecutorial discretion there. I do share, you know, kind of what you alluded to that you can indict somebody for false statements without coming anywhere near 39 pages. And it seems to me the bulk of those 39 pages are devoted to laying out facts and atmospherics that are well beyond the scope of anything Danchenko is alleged to illegally have done. And, you know, I went through and I was looking at you know, France and some of the things like, you know, I did a word search Clinton or Clinton's is mentioned, I think, 17 times in those 39 pages, yet nothing Danchenko is charged with has anything to do with the Clintons. So, yes, speaking indictments will lay out kind of the context of the charges. But what concerns me is this is such a broad kind of backstory in many cases about things that have nothing to do with Danchenko that it strikes me as, you know, maybe not quite gratuitous, but, you know, I, I my belief is Durham is laying out his theory of the case of what was going on with some of the 
um, research being done on behalf of the Clinton campaign. But I think it's done in a way that really plays into the narrative that was first coming out from Trump and then Bill Barr and now all their sort of enablers in the media and Congress and elsewhere that, you know, all of the investigations were based on Oppo research. They were all a product of Hillary Clinton paying Perkins Coie and Fusion GPS, that none of this was legitimate. And you see that going on today. And that's simply nonsense. And I think John Durham is a good enough prosecutor and a savvy enough politically attuned prosecutor that he understands what his words will and won't be used to do. And I think he certainly, to the extent he's trying to both be and appear to be an objective third party, these 39 pages don't don't really do him much help in that regard. I feel like a lot of information is left out. You know, we know and we've, we've talked about this ad nauseum that the crossfire hurricane was not open, predicated on the Steele dossier. Neither was the Mueller investigation, nor did the FISA warrant signed by Rosenstein, by the way, the renewal in September of 2016 after Carter Page left the Trump campaign, nor did that rely heavily or solely on on the Steele dossier. It, it was in the application, but I'm pretty sure Inspector General Horowitz said that that would probably have gone forward without the information in the Steele dossier. And so that information seems to be left out. And it's kind of a pattern now because, you know, when we talked about the Sussman indictment, he included all these emails from researchers who were looking at the Alpha Bank Spectrum Trump Tower communications. He he had put in some included in his indictment some emails of people saying there's nothing there. It doesn't look like there's anything there, but then left out emails of researchers saying there's definitely something there. These are covert communications trying to be hidden by uh, Trump and Alpha Bank. And so I, I, it just feels like there's either, you know, exculpatory information or additional information that's sort of being left out of these 39 pages that tell the whole story, not just part of it. Yeah. And, and part of that's, I mean, that's the issue with when you start getting into a really long indictment. I mean, the prosecutor has no obligation to tell them both sides of the story. They're going to lay out the facts that tend to, uh, you know, that that certainly include the facts of how the law was broken that, but also, you know, there's some leeway there to, you know, describe the background and the atmospherics and, you know, some prosecutors kind of unfair way to think about is, well, we're going to dirty up the defendant. And I don't think that's what's going on here with Danchenko. I don't think he's the one necessarily being dirtied up. I think who's being dirtied up or, you know, kind of the background players of all these folks who were connected to the research being done on behalf of the Clinton campaign. But what concerns me a little bit is when you start talking about those things, you aren't necessarily talking directly about the crimes that Danchenko is alleged to have committed. And then you do start getting into a question of like, okay, well, if you're going to talk about that, why, you know, what is your obligation or not to present a balanced side of the story? And they're, they're little things. And I, you know, I've mentioned this before that, you know, they talk at, at one point in the, um, in, in the indictment about the quote, the FBI's investigation of the Trump campaign relied on large part, da, 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 da. Well, this is, there was never an investigation of the Trump campaign. And it seems like a small point, except unless you go back and you listen to everything from what, what Trump was complaining about, that they investigated my campaign. It's never been done before. Bill Barr picked that up and he said it over and over again. And the Bureau, at least until all of us got fired or <laughs> removed, made a point of saying, look, the FBI doesn't investigate campaigns. Mm -hmm. We had a clear, specific allegation 
that had, by the way, as you indicated, nothing whatsoever to do with Steele or any of his information that led to an opening of a case to figure out whether or not an allegation that somebody on the, in the campaign had been coordinating with the government of Russia to release emails or other material, that wasn't an investigation of the campaign. And so part of it, it sounds like it's splitting hairs, but it plays into this very, very pro-Trump talking point that the FBI was investigating the campaign, that those of us on the inside, those of us who, in the, who worked on it, those of us who, you, who reported on it or watched it, kind of took pains to say that's not accurate. So when I see that repeated, and I don't even know that that was conscious, on the part of the attorneys who drafted this uh, on behalf of, of Durham's team. But it indicates that there is, at a minimum, a lack of awareness that this is kind of a really, it is an issue. It is something that has been battled over, that has been tried to be put forth in a, in a sort of perception management sort of way by conservative pro-Trump elements. But it also speaks to the fact that I, I don't know that this narrative underneath does much for the public understanding other than to conflate the accurate, real predication of these investigations from the false ones. It obscures the fact that both Alpha Bank and Carter Page were tiny little, the public was seized with Steele's material, but the investigators weren't. Right. I mean, we put a lot of effort into figuring it out because we needed to be able to answer whether or not it was accurate. But at the end of the day, Flynn and Papadopoulos and Stone and Assange and Natalia Veselnitskaya offering dirt at a Trump Tower meeting and Manafort meeting and passing information via, oh, what's his name, the deputy campaign manager to Constantin Kalimnik. None of that. None of those people, not the IRA hackers, not the GRU hackers that were indicted. None of that had anything ever to do with Steele. Mm -hmm. And so the danger, I think, is you read these 39 pages and you start, if you're not steeped in the Mueller investigation, you start wondering, well, maybe this was all bogus Hillary Clinton funded oppo research. And that's simply not the case. And that's the danger of having these really deep narratives thrown out like this. Yeah. Yeah. And, you, you know, you mentioned how much effort was put into following leads in the Steele dossier, some of information provided by Denchenko. And I think that that ties into what you were talking about a little bit earlier about materiality. In this particular case, and I want to ask you quickly about that, but I have to take a break. Will you stay with me? Mm -hmm. Sure. Thanks. Everybody, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG bringing you the Daily Beans. Friends, if you're looking for a captivating mobile game to keep your anxiety low, but your mind sharp, you have to try Best Fiends. It's my favorite match three style game by far. The rest are basically just the same game over and over with different color schemes. So I say stop crushing the same old candy and try something new and exciting and beautiful with a great audio. I mean, it sounds good. It looks it's soothing. It's wonderful. It has an engaging storyline with good guys, the fiends, and the bad guys are the slugs. And you start out with little baby fiends, but as you play, they get more powerful. They level up and you get new fiends to join the team and they all help. They all have like specific things they can do and you use them strategically to solve increasingly challenging puzzles. With Best Fiends, you get action-packed adventure, but a brain-boosting puzzle game too. For me, it was a nice way to take a break from the daily stress and relax. Best Fiends has literally thousands of levels with more added all the time. It's always fresh. There's always a new challenge to look forward to whenever I need a fun break from reality or a little mental boost to keep me sharp. So you can download Best Fiends for free today at the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. And today's show is also brought to you by Allform. They are the company making beautiful furniture customized to your specifications and delivered fast to your door. 
Allform creates premium furniture tailored to meet your needs and then delivered to your doorstep free of charge. With Allform, you can customize your own luxury furniture using premium materials, but at a fraction of the cost. I chose a three-seater sofa in whiskey-colored leather with walnut legs and a chaise lounge. It is comfortable. It is stylish. I can faint if I need to if I'm swooning over, you know, Andy McCabe or whatever. Uh, but it's it looks amazing. It's comfortable. And it, the scratch-resistant and stain and spill-resistant fabric mean that uh, I can have the pod pets on it. And all form ships fast. It arrives in the mail in just three to seven days. It's easier to it's easier to put together than pretty much anything. You don't need any tools. And they have beautiful armchairs and love seats all the way up to eight seat sectionals. And you can always start small and buy more seats later if you want. Best of all, you get 100 days to decide if you want to keep it. That's more than three months. And if you do not love it, there's zero risk. They will pick it up for you for free, give you a full refund. And they have a forever warranty, literally forever. So to find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com slash dailybeans. Allform is offering 20% off all orders for listeners at allform.com slash dailybeans. Everybody, welcome back. We're talking with Pete Strzok, author of Compromise. If you haven't picked it up, I highly recommend you do. And right before the break and a little bit earlier in the first segment there, you had mentioned materiality. You were more comfortable arguing materiality in the Denchenko indictment than you would be in the Sussman indictment. And, you know, the Sussman indictment, that makes sense, because in the Sussman indictment, Durham said, you know, had they known that this guy had Jim Baker known that the FBI known this guy was working for Perkins Coie's working for Clinton, which they did. The FBI might have done some things differently. They may have changed their ways that they analyzed the data. They might have done these things. They really emphasize that emphasis intentional. But talk about the materiality in, in this one, because, you know, I talked to Frank Fogluzzi about this as well. And he was like, look, you, you, you can't lie to the FBI. If you lie to the FBI, you should be prosecuted. What is the materiality here? And does it have anything to do with a lot of people out there are, are sort of positing that this was purposeful? deliberate disinformation by the Russians to be injected into the Steele dossier. Of course, that's all speculation. But what is the materiality here just for the lie? Let's start there. Well, so I think your listeners need to understand that as, as the law and courts have defined, case law have defined materiality, it's a very, very broad concept that is extraordinarily favorable to the government. It's, it is something that it doesn't have to... It, and I, I, I am not an attorney, so I don't want to get into the specific definitions, but suffice it to say that it is anything that might tend to or possibly influence a decision or an investigative path. The courts have shown great deference to the government in saying this is a material, a material false statement. The irony, of course, is the one and only time in my career that I've seen the government argue against that was with Mike Flynn, when the government took pains to say that it wasn't material. Now, the lies that Mike Flynn uttered were a thousand times more material than anything Danchenko, let alone Sussman, did. And so what will be very interesting to me is, is to see whether or not Sussman's attorneys won't be able to resurrect some of these arguments that the, you know, in DOJ, including some career prosecutors at, uh, at DC and DOJ made in the Flynn case to argue that, you know, this sort of disparity in, in interpretation of, you know, the government believes what materiality means 99.99% of the time, unless you're in Bill Barr's DOJ and happen to be a friend of President Trump. And then there's a different standard, mm -hmm. that one and only time. But for this, you know, for Danchenko, it's, you know, while I said, yeah, you know, we're, there wasn't a lot that Steele's material had to do with the bulk of our investigative work. At the end of the day, we were putting resources, analytic resources into trying to figure out whether or not these were legitimate claims and who these subsources were. So to the extent that we were trying to figure out, you know, is this legitimate information? Is it lies, gossip, 
disinformation. And of course, we considered all of these things. I mean, there are a lot of, you know, pundits who, you know, watched a couple of YouTube videos from, you know, their mother's basement and have suddenly become counterintelligence experts. But there's always, you know, every single source you look at, particularly with a sophisticated group, like, you know, the Russian intel services, of course, you're approaching the body of information, trying to figure out, is some of it, all of it disinformation? Is the person providing it, witting that it's disinformation? You know, certainly Steele was, and it comes across in the indictment, was not necessarily quiet about what he was doing, nor was Danchenko. And so we were absolutely cognizant of the fact that the Russians might be aware that not only Steele, but various people connected to him, including Danchenko, might have been collecting information and might have been, you know, open to be fed disinformation. So that's all part of the analytic calculus that's going on. Of course, the FBI was thinking about that. We were thinking about that. That's not something that, you know, Jim Jordan suddenly discovered as he was, you know, hiding from, you know, the, the sins of his past as a, as a assistant wrestling coach. But it is not inappropriate for the Bureau to have been putting those resources there, even if Steele, his material ultimately didn't play that big a role in what we were doing. And because of that, these lies matter. If Danchenko is not, you know, if he would have said, oh, yeah, you know, I, I'm not actually sure whether or not I talked to this, you know, Russian Chamber of Commerce executive or president, former president, or I actually didn't meet him. I only had calls, which I thought may or may not have been him. Or if he talked and said, hey, yeah, some of this material I was getting from PR executive one, not from these other people, it would have changed, in my opinion, the way that we went about doing our work to understand the steel material. So again, from a materia materiality perspective, I think it's a, you can make a, in a strong case. And yeah, you know, it's wrong to lie to the FBI, but in this case, it's, it's wrong to lie to the FBI because it causes us, every time those analysts or agents are trying to track down something based on Danchenko's false statement, it is keeping them from doing other work in other areas. So Again, I think it's a pretty direct line, in my opinion, as alleged. You know, we don't, these are all allegations. We don't know if they're, he, you know, he'll go to trial, presumably, and they have to be proven in court. But in my opinion, as alleged in the indictment, I think there's a, a pretty strong case for materiality. Five counts of it? I don't know. Two, for sure. You know, gives you something to, to bargain with, I guess, as a prosecutor. Gotcha. Well, yeah, that makes sense. Final question that has just been nagging at me, bugging me. What's Durham's end game here? What is he going for? I, it, you know, I was trying to figure out, you know, if he's doing, if he's doing these speaking indictments that are very one-sided and, and imply improper or, or kind of almost conspiracy theories, is he a true believer or is he like, what's he trying to do? And then, and then is this, is he stepping up to anything? Is he trying to go after higher ups in the FBI or like, what's the deal? I don't know. I mean, he's been going on now. I think this coming Saturday will literally be two and a half years um, anniversary date and compare that to Mueller who went on for, I think, 675, 674 days. So less than two years. So he's far outpaced the length of special counsel Mueller's group of investigations. And these, again, at least Danchenko strikes me as reasonable, but these aren't, you know, there is, there are, there are allegations that got left on like scraps on the floor in my opinion, which were probably better than, better than these cases, um, that were left with, with Mueller, you know, farmed out to other U.S. attorney's offices to pursue. But I think reading both of these indictments, at least it seems to be, it appears to me that he is trying to set forth this idea that a group of people 
primarily funded or hired by the Clinton campaign were using groups, whether that's the law firm of Perkins Coie, whether there's investigative firms like Fusion GPS, whether, you know, specific individuals rather than just the entire firm, but were using individuals to engage in not only opposition research that they were feeding to the FBI, but they were feeding up a research that contained information they knew to be deliberately false. And that therefore, you know, whether or not one criticism might be, and I don't agree with it, that, oh, the FBI should have, you know, realized that sooner. I don't think that's right. Two, I'm not even sure that, you know, opera research is a dirty, nasty business, and that is done by both parties. And my understanding of at least Fusion's work was, we began with a Republican challenger of Trump's, not by, like, the work began by Fusion, funded by one of Trump's competitors on the Republican side. When Trump got the nomination, then the Democratic side stepped in and, and continued providing funding in way, shape, or form. Now, that's my understanding. You see that nowhere in Sussman's indictment or Danchenko's indictment. It's all about the bad Democrats and the evil, you know, the evil foreign power of Hillary Clinton and her campaign. But Oppo research is nasty and it's dirty. And, you know, yeah, we got it. And we, you know, my think we were certainly understanding that Steele's material might be that. And then, you know, the other side is there's stuff coming in from the Republicans as well. And, you know, this Peter Schweitzer's book, Clinton Cash. Well, there's no special counsel looking into the reason and the way the FBI handled the information that, you know, and Clinton Cash making allegations about Uranium One and the Clinton Foundation and all these other things. It's just the Bureau does take a look when stuff comes in. So I think Durham's big point might be that there were deliberate obfuscations and misstatements in some of the material and information that was provided to the FBI that caused the FBI to do things that they wouldn't otherwise have done. So I don't know who else he has in his sights. I don't know that Dan Schenko is the last person. I would be, I think, surprised to see it go very high up. Like, I don't, you know, I've seen things saying, oh, Hillary Clinton or Jake Sullivan or all these people are going to, you know, Mark Elias, they're all getting wrapped up. I don't know that that's true. On the Bureau side, I'm certainly not. I, I am unaware of any, you know, improper, let alone illegal activity, you know, that hasn't already been the, the, the things with the alteration of an email relating to, you know, sort of the characterization of Carter Page's relationship with, with the, with another government agency, um, is out there. But I, you know, I, I would be shocked if there was anything else on the government side, shocked and surprised. It's getting long though. I mean, it's, it's time to, you know, it's, it's time to finish up. I, I know with, it working in Mueller's team, there was like from the first day, an extraordinary sense of time pressure. Like do it well, and we're going to do it well, and we're going to do it right, but don't drag ass. I mean, we, we hurry up and get, you know, do these things, do them all at once. Don't do them one after one after one. Do many things all at once and get through it because we want to figure out what's there and uh, move on. And, I, you know, two and a half years later, we're getting two little rabbit holes of a alpha bank server that didn't amount to anything and a material that led to Carter Page's investigation primarily that didn't amount to anything. Really? That's what, that's what we've got. Yeah. So we'll see. Maybe he's got more, maybe there is, you know, more to come and all kinds of great information that the public's not aware of yet. So he doesn't, he doesn't leak. And I tip of the hat to, to that, you know, Mueller didn't either. So I think both men ought to, you know, deserve credit for running an investigation the way an investigation should be run outside of the public eye. But at some point, I mean, come on, we're heading into the midterm elections and let's just finish this up. 
Yeah, I have a feeling that had there been any sort of big, amazing thing, it would have come out before the election, not within 60 days, but prior to the 60 day window before the election, which is how I remember Donald wanted a report from Durham. Durham's like, I'm not going to give you a report two weeks before the election. Yeah. And remembering his deputy, uh, Norm Dennehy, who's been who worked with him on both at the U.S. attorney's office up in Connecticut and then on several. My understanding is, you know, the investigations that he did outside of that context, allegedly per press reporting quit yeah. because of what she thought was improper pressure by Barr to get a to get a report out. So, you know, there are indications in there. There are things, you know, that concerns me when when Durham you know, made a public statement, you know, taking issue with Horowitz's characterization of the start of the investigations, that concerned me is 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 really very unusual and, and improper. But yeah, it's it's been going on a while and you'd think if there was something bigger that would have come out by now. Well, we'll see. We'll see where it ends up. But I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Everybody pick up the book Compromised. Really amazing read. And uh, I appreciate your time today. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Hey, everybody, it's AG. And this Helping of the Beans is brought to you by Cometeer, the most delicious coffee brewed better through science. Cometeer is frozen pre-brewed coffee in pocket-sized recyclable capsules that you melt to make. No equipment needed. It's amazing. With Cometeer, you're always just a minute away from barista-quality coffee and lattes. I used to drink coffee with cream and sugar all the time, but Cometeer is so balanced and smooth and delicious, I can have it black. Cometeer is so simple to make, too. They've discovered a new way to do it. After the brewing process, the coffee is flash-frozen to lock in all the aromas and freshness, and then you just pop it in warm water. You melt it, and then you just add the frozen coffee to a cup of hot water. And, you know, if we want iced coffee, you just pour the melted coffee into water with ice, and it's iced coffee in 10 seconds. And lattes are just as easy. Cometeer arrives each month to my home and features the best regional specialty roasters with enough capsules for 32 cups of coffee. It's a kind of delicious variety I've always wanted. And we have a special offer just for you. For a limited time, you get $20 off your first order, 10 free cups, and shipping is always free, but only when you visit cometeer.com slash beans20. That's cometeer, C-O-M-E-T-E-E-R. And that's cometeer.com slash beans20. I was skeptical about it at first. I mean, it's brewed coffee you melt to make, but it's truly, it's fast, it's easy, it's delicious. One of the best cups of coffee, if not the best that I've ever had. Now, if you like coffee at all, it's you have to taste it to believe it. So try it at cometeer.com slash beans20 and you save $20 on your first order. A new day has arrived on earth for coffee. That's cometeer.com slash beans20. And today's show is also brought to you by Bowl and Branch. This time of year, the holidays makes me think of family and the importance of showing them how much they mean to me, whether it's my family family or my chosen family. Because we spend one third of our lives sleeping in bed. So pure organic cotton sheets from Bowl and Branch make a truly wonderful gift. Bowl and Branch never disappoints with the highest quality sheets, blankets, pillows, and throws. I love their throws. They're so cozy and they make amazing gifts. And their holiday packaging means your gift looks and feels special. They do a really good job. I love my Bowl and Branch sheets. They're buttery soft, light, and luxurious. They have a magnificent silken texture, and they're transparently sourced and produced to a higher standard with toxin-free processes and fair trade certification. Their sheets are amazing quality and at a fair price. I'm planning on gifting a set to someone special this season. Actually, I'm getting most people I know some Bowl and Branch because especially the throws, I just absolutely love them. They're going to enjoy it. And Bowl and Branch holds themselves to higher standards across the board too. It's not just their amazing product. They source pure organic cotton, they put workers' rights first. They, so treat yourself and loved ones to a new standard in bedding from Bowl and Branch. The gifts come wrapped and ready in their special holiday packaging. It's beautiful. Order by 1219. Order by December 19th for guaranteed delivery by Christmas. Best deals of the year going. 
now from, uh, let's see, November 1st to November 11th with promo code DAILYBEANS at BowlandBranch.com. That's BowlandBranch, B-O-L-L, and Branch.com and use promo code DAILYBEANS, all one word. Exclusions may apply. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Well, we'll float on good news is on the way. And joining me today out of the goodness and kindness of her heart, because she's so awesome, is Amy Carrero. Hello, Amy. Hello. How are you? I'm good. It's good to see you again. It's good to talk to you. Good to see you too. Yeah. Woohoo! Yay. All right. So, huh, let's see. We have a lot of good news to get to. If anyone has any good news they want to send in, or I'm still accepting full on, I'll be accepting Halloween pictures until Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah. So if you, if you dressed up your pod pets or yourself or your children or your babies, send them in, send me the photos. I must see them. I must. It's required. Or if you have any, you know, limericks or shit kids say or shit parents say those are pretty funny whatever you want to send into us you can do it at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact and we will be happy to read them on the air for you and and i'm going to kick us off amy with a submission from charlie and charlie didn't give any pronouns but charlie says first off y'all rock confession i missed something i play video games and have my own team or clan Yikes, (laughs) in which there is a tag associated in front of the players' names who are members. Mine is 106. That's O N E, spelled out O N E, and then the number zero and the number six. Some other person I was playing with tonight asked, What's the 16 thing? And holy crap, my brain scrambled to insurrection immediately, (gasps) having heard it come out of someone else's mouth. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) The reality, however, is that I'm a nerd oceanographer. And I named my team and made our tag 106 because it related to the Redfield ratio of 106 carbon to 16 nitrogen to one phosphorus, which is the idealistic composition of elements in phytoplankton in the ocean (laughs) (laughs) and the world's ocean. I'm not an insurrectionist. Best wishes to all of you. Oh, Charlie. (laughs) Charlie, my brain is mashed potatoes after reading that. But I'm so glad somebody knows the perfect ratio of phytoplankton in the ocean. I'm very relieved to hear that. That is pretty great. 106. 106. Love it. Okay, next up, we've got Renee, pronouns she, her. I love you guys. Daily Beans is almost always my first podcast of the day. Y'all help me keep me sane even when the news is bad. So thank you. My good news, having been unemployed for a nightmarish three years, oh my gosh, I left my previous employer for the sake of my mental health, toughest decision of my life, I have been offered an eight-month contract with a great organization, one I really believe in. And there is a chance for extension of the contract or for me to secure another job in the organization once this contract ends. Either way, this gets me back in the game and I am happier than I've been since I left my previous job. I will get to do my part to support causes I love, like vaccination clinicals, uh, medical treatment for Afghan refugees, AIDS victims, and others as a part of my professional life. This is in addition to full-time employment. It means the world to me. Anyway, I feel hopeful for my future and for the first time since the Obama administration. My pet, oh my God, I love this already. My pet tax is my sweet girl, Scully. I love the X-Files. Me too. I'm honestly not sure of her breed, but the Humane Society told me she was part miniature schnauzer and part cocker spaniel. I'm not sure, but she's all love, despite her pretty much deadly expressions in these photos. (laughs) (laughs) She does look like she's going to whoop some ass. I love it. What a cutie. Cutie. 
So adorbs. Mm-hmm. It looks soft, too. I want to pet. Thank you for that. That's amazing. Next up from Jordan, pronoun she and her. Hello, Beans Queens. I have to confess one of my new favorite hobbies. A while back, I started getting automated emails from representatives. Beth Van uh, Dune, maybe? Mm-hmm. You might remember her from being the horrible former mayor of Irving, Texas, Great. who is still a staunch supporter of the former guy, the big fucking liar. <laughs> She's like the human embodiment of a paper cut. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> she's the U.S. representative for Texas's 24th district. And her emails to her constituents are terrible. But they are a key part of my hobby. Every once in a while, she sends out surveys that heavily skew to the right in their questions. But I'm more than happy to offer my most honest answers. I've included my most recent responses. Bless whoever included an other option that opens up a text response. Please enjoy and know that she will absolutely be seeing responses from me to every single survey until she's voted out of office. Oh, my gosh. All right. So here's the first one. Beth Van Dune, survey on spending. Do you believe two trillion dollars in increased government spending will increase inflation? Yes, no other. And she chose other and says... Closing tax loopholes for the ultra wealthy will pay for the proposed government spending, which is desperately needed in the form of human infrastructure, including the wildly popular paid medical and family leave. Dumb fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Jordan is doing the Lord's work. I know. I know. Here's another one. Do you support the tax increases on small businesses included in the Democrat spending package? Yes, no other. She chose other. And says, the tax increases in the Build Back Better plan is on major corporations and multi-billionaires. Ask your donors who have been dodging fair tax payments for decades. Dumb fuck. (laughs) I love the the end dumb fuck. Hilarious. Yeah. Next up, do you support the Democrats' effort to add amnesty for illegal immigrants in a spending package? Oh, for fuck's sake. Other. And uh, and she says, I absolutely support efforts to expand the legal immigration process as well as amnesty for refugees and people seeking asylum. That population covers many of your constituents and workers for businesses in your district. Dumb fuck. <laughs> oh, man, that makes me so happy. So yeah, those are so always fun happy. to respond to. So Heck fun yeah. to respond. But to. also it has to be so hard to read. You know what I mean? Like to actually sit there and like read the email like that would just burn me up. But I'm so grateful for Jordan. That's so cool. Okay, the next one, Anonymous. Hey, Beans Queens. Since it's that time of the year, I figured I'd share my Thanksgiving story for the year. It's really part good news, part confession, and a whole lot of thank you to a community of complete strangers. I'll leave it up to you to decide which. I live in a rural area on the outskirts of San Diego in the not-so-nice part of town. I don't mind the location, but sometimes my neighbors leave a bit to be desired. About four months ago, a new dog appeared at the neighborhood place. He spent a lot of time sniffing at my dog and horses through the fence, but other than that, nothing special. I always say hi when I saw him, but that was all. Fast forward a couple of months, and I had to return neighbor dog home a couple of times because his owners allowed him to get out of their yard and run loose on our fairly busy street. I know others in the neighborhood had done so too. Unfortunately, neighbor's dog owners didn't see it worthwhile to, you know, close the gate to their yard even after multiple escapes. I guess they just didn't care. Three weeks ago now on a Sunday morning, the inevitable happened. Oh no, neighbor dog got out 
again. And this time he was hit by a truck a couple homes down from mine. I heard the screeching tires and a commotion, ran out the front to see if anyone needed help and saw four dudes standing around neighbor dog who was lying in the road. One of the guys standing there just staring at neighbor dog was his owner. I ran up, asked if he could get up, was told no. And since no one else was willing to do something, I squawked at the dopes in my best Marine Corps voice. Ha, I knew that come in handy one day to get him off the road and beat feet to my car and get the dog to the emergency vet. In the end, neighbor's dog injuries were bad but fixable. Both back legs were broken, one at the hip joint, I know, horrible, and one and other just above the knee. He spent a couple of days at the emergency vet, and I shuttled him to a regular vet who could perform surgeries to repair his legs. Total cost estimate was four to six thousand dollars. Unfortunately, there wasn't much help to be had from authorities or local organizations, so I committed to paying out of pocket with the thinking that I'll figure it out. Let's just get him healthy again and go from there. The good news is he's on the men, doing well, and steals the hearts of everyone who meets him. Cheer! The confession, I did all of this for not my dog, knowing I couldn't bring him home and would need to find him a soft place to land, and that I couldn't really afford it. I did anyway. How could I not? The thanks. I started a Facebook fundraiser for him and my sister posted about him on Nextdoor. So many people shared the thing that even though I wasn't really intending to ask for money or expecting it, random strangers from all over the country donated and paid almost half of his vet bills, just over 2K in total donations. So amazing. I have never been so thankful for the kindness of strangers. And just as great, a vet tech at the animal hospital is going to foster him through rehab. Anyway, just thought... This was a feel-good story worth sharing and that if you felt it appropriate, maybe you could send the thank you so much to all the people who are willing to step up, come together, and help one another regardless. I'd be really grateful. I'm sure some of the folks who donated and sent good thoughts out are listening to the pod. Even more, however, I just wanted to share something I've been thinking about the past few weeks. It is worth to get involved, even when it's scary, when you're not sure if you should, when it's not your problem. It never hurts to ask. It could save a life. I've attached a few pics of neighbor dog, now called handsome, apparently, complete with <laughs> cone of shame, splint, and get your booty up harness. Feel free to play guess the breed, but I don't have any idea what he really is, aside from a cutie pie. Thanks for all you do. Oh, poor Bobby. Look at the baby. Little blip. Yeah. And his little back feeties. Poor Bobby. Oh, wow. What an incredible story. You know, you just did it. Yeah. And you said, we'll figure it out later. Oh, God. And then all these folks came to lend a hand. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I think sometimes we underestimate how good people can be. Yeah, I know. I know. Especially when it comes to, you know, little innocent pets. I mean, there's just, it's kind of a bummer that neighbor didn't, you know, I don't know. I'm just glad that that doggo is safe. And I'm so thankful to Anonymous for the good deed. Yeah. And this is nearby too. This is close. This is outside San Diego. This is right around where I live. Yeah. And, you know, when she says lives in a part of town, the not so nice part of town, rural area in the outskirts. I, th- I think I know where she's talking about. Yeah. Oh, really? You do? I, I don't yeah. think I've ever driven by a rural area outside of San Diego. But to be fair, I've only been to San Diego for Comic-Con. So, yeah. And also, to be fair, there's only one way to go. There's the ocean, TJ. Right, right. <laughs> you know, there's I mean, I guess you could go north, but it, it gets nicer as you go up north. But right. it's it's 
It's when you go east. And so, yep, yep. But um, thank you so much for sending that in and the pictures. And thanks to everybody for contributing your good news stories today. I really appreciate it. It's yeah, we're going to keep we're going to keep on needing these as as yes. the weeks uh, go on. I'm I'm anticipating some very good news soon, but, you know, in the larger in the actual news news part of the news. But we, we need these for reals. So send them in. You can do that by going to dailybeanspod.com and clicking on contact. Amy, thanks for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me. This is always great. And it brightens my day. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. And I'm so glad you're filling in for Dana. And uh, do you have any last final thoughts before we close the show today? No, I'm, I'm my 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 brain is an empty hole. <laughs> my, my head is empty. <laughs> But I am full of good news. So um, thanks for sending them in. And thanks for having me on these extra days. Yeah. Head like a hole. Black as your soul. Yes. (laughs) It's a nine inch nails. And the rest. And the rest. (laughs) We got a couple of emails about that too. We'll probably get into those tomorrow. But I I appreciate you and everyone else. I appreciate you for listening. So till tomorrow, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. I've been Allison Gill. And I've been Amy Carrero. And them's the beans. Yeah. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com.